The word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Many are called, but few are chosen. The king certainly calls many to his son's wedding feast. He begins with the ones you'd expect to be there, the nobles and authorities and the important people who have been in his sphere for a long time. They've been told to save the date, and they've received formal invitations. The wedding has, without a doubt, been the talk of the town, and it's going to be the event of the year. Finally, the day arrives, and there's little doubt that the king has seen to every last detail, and the wedding is going to be perfect. The beef is on the grill, and as the savory smells royal from the kitchen throughout the palace, he sends out his servants to tell his guests that the time has arrived for the wedding. They don't want to come. They don't want to honor the king and come to the wedding. Despite the offense, the king is persistent and sends more servants, and the answer is the same. Some have better things to do, like another day of work at the farm or the business, and the best construction there is that they're workaholics with horrible priorities. Were it not for the king's kindness and protection, they would have no farms or businesses, not to mention the fact that they're passing on the celebration of the year to focus on their own labors. With others, though, there's no best construction to find. When the servants return to repeat the invitation, the invited guests seize them, treat them shamefully, and even kill them. Now, I get that not everybody likes to go to weddings, but kill the servant who gives the invitation? 
kill the king's servant and skip the wedding of his son? What good can come from that? Meanwhile, I will also note that the king in this parable is like the master of the vineyard last week. These guys keep sending out their servants without weapons, with only words, and the results in an evil world are sadly predictable. Finally, when the king has had enough, he responds with force. He sends out his troops and destroys the city of those who have rejected his invitation. They get what's coming to them, and justice is served. However, that still leaves a lot of empty seats in the wedding hall, and that just won't do. So the king says to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Note, by the way, that he doesn't say that the new guests are worthy of the wedding feast, but they are invited because the servants go out and they invite the good and the bad. They go through the aisles at the grocery store inviting customers and staff. Then they go out and invite the people who are living in their cars in the parking lot. They stand on the traffic island handing out invitations to drivers stuck at the red light and of course to the panhandlers with the cardboard signs. They invite the families of the rest stop out in the interstate as well as the shadowy figures who work it by night. They stop in at the coffee shop with the patriotic theme, as well as the one down the street with the mugs that mock the king. The invitation is the same. Come to the wedding, because the king has prepared it and all is ready. Doesn't matter who you are. What matters is that the king has done the work and the king has summoned you. It must be hard to believe for many. They're going to think it's a con or wonder what strings are attached or just stick with their scheduled vices. But many of those called by the king's invitation do come to the wedding and eventually the hall is packed. It's packed with a New York subway kind of crowd with the good, the bad, and the ugly shoulder to shoulder. They might have nothing in common with those next to them. They might normally go out of their way to avoid those next to them. But they have one thing in common. The king has invited them to his son's wedding. And yes, it's all a little unlikely, a little ridiculous. But remember, this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's time for the feast and the king arrives. And here's where this parable takes the stranger turn. Among the guests, the king spots one man who isn't wearing a wedding garment. He picks him out and says to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man has no answer. He's speechless. So the king tells his servants to bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness, the darkness with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. End of parable. So the king sounds a little crazy at this point, does he not? For starters, consider his criteria for the guests. He's told his servants to invite whoever they can find, and now he's got a problem that one is poorly dressed? Should he not be amazed that only one is poorly dressed? 
Furthermore, how about that overreaction? Instead of just sending him out the door, the king has the man tied up and helplessly thrown into outer darkness? Well, many have offered different explanations about the missing garment, but we don't really have a lot of great research to go on. What we can conclude is that the man who lacks a wedding garment isn't the sympathetic figure that you might first think. Whatever he's wearing, he stands out from the rest of the people. He's a man who has accepted the king's invitation to the king's feast at the king's wedding hall. But by his clothing, he's saying, I'm going to do things my way and set my terms in the king's house. And that's why he gets the boot. Jesus tells this parable and his cross is just a few days away. To apply the parable a bit, the Lord has been preparing Israel for the Messiah's arrival since before Israel was a nation when he first told Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. The Israelites have been told to save the date, as it were, to expect the coming of the Christ in God's time. Among them, No one should be more ready than the chief priests and the Pharisees, those scholars of Scripture who should be teaching it to the people. But now that the day has come, now that the Messiah stands in their midst, they do not want his invitation. And his invitation is to forgiveness and salvation and eternal life in heaven. Instead, they would rather be doing other things, focusing on their own works and labors. But, Since Jesus persists in his invitation, they're going to do to him what their forebears did to the prophets who prepared his way. They're going to seize him, treat him shamefully, and kill him. Now, if they will not gladly come into his kingdom by his invitation, Jesus won't leave his kingdom empty. He goes to the highways and hedges. He invites tax collectors, prostitutes, and other notorious sinners He gathers in Roman centurions and Canaanite moms, lepers and blind men, the poor and diseased. As he gathers them in, he clothes them. He wraps them up in his righteousness so that they're ready for the feast. He exchanges his holiness for their sin, then bears their sin to the cross and suffers the outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth in their place. Three days later, he'll rise from the dead, never to die again, and living and reigning in heaven forevermore. He'll raise his guests from the dead to the marriage feast of the Lamb, which has no end. Clothed in his righteousness, they won't look like a crowd of misfits and sinners. They'll all look holy and blameless because they'll be holy and blameless. I love this parable in part because it so beautifully proclaims the good news of the king's grace and helps us refocus on the task of the church. It is one of the devil's great tricks that we tend to see evangelism as a terrible drudgery, an onerous task that God has placed upon us so that we can feel guilty all the time. In our repentance for falling prey to this deception, it is good for us to acknowledge this. There is no better news than the good news of Jesus Christ. In a world of darkness and sin and death, 
where so many live without meaning and without hope, you and I get to proclaim the news to the greatest celebration of all time and beyond time. Because Christ has died and Christ is risen from the dead, the gates of heaven are open. We have the joy of saying, come to the marriage feast of the Lamb. It has no end. It goes on forever. There is nothing you need to do to earn a seat because Jesus has paid the price at the cross and now you have the invitation. This is the feast that you heard about in Isaiah 25 where God provides rich food, wipes away tears from the eyes of his people and, oh, by the way, swallows up death forever. That's the message of the church to the world. An invitation to turn from death to life because Christ has died and Christ is risen from the dead. Reactions to this news will vary. Sinners naturally assume that religion is all about their own good works, which are happy to measure by their own standards of right and wrong, not by God's holy law. This makes perfect sense if one does not believe in the word, both the word made flesh and holy scripture. But the upshot is that it makes total sense to sinners to say, I'll skip the Lord's invitation to forgiveness and stay focused on what I've got to get done. Their heroes are the invited guests who skip the wedding to go to the farm or the business. What they do might be totally selfish or totally helpful to other people, but either way, they're saying no to God and His grace. Even sinners who make it to worship are going to struggle with this. Take you, for instance. You've already confessed your sinfulness, how much you don't deserve God's mercy and grace. Not at all. And yet, there's still that whisper inside that says God loves you because you're doing good or you're doing better than before or you suffered some bad stuff and yet you're still here or because people find you friendly so God must also find you friendly or whatever. Whenever you start to buy into these thoughts, and you do before you know it, you're starting to shrug off your wedding garment. You're starting to say, I want God to judge me by who I am and what I've done, not by Jesus and what he's done for me. Now, you do not want to show up at the marriage feast of the Lamb without Christ's robe of righteousness because then you'll be found naked and ashamed. So, keep your clothes on. As St. Paul reminds you in Galatians 3, verse 27, in your baptism, you were clothed with Christ. By His grace, you stand before God wearing His righteousness, not your guilt and shame. And it's only because you're clothed in Christ that you have a seat at the wedding. Keep wearing that robe of righteousness through daily repentance, through daily rejoicing in His grace, and frequent reception of His word and supper. Speaking of which, after the sermon and before the supper, you probably note, I disappear for a moment while you sing, and I put on a chasuble, or as someone has said before, what's with the holy poncho? So, Why do I put it on? Trust me, it's not because I'm cold. It's not that my own sermon gives me chills. 
The chasuble, I'm told, comes out of this parable. It's a reminder of the wedding garment, that we can come into God's presence and dine at his table because we are all clothed with the righteousness of Christ. As we sometimes pray afterwards, this supper is a foretaste of the feast to come, the marriage feast of the Lamb which has no end. And it has no end because the Lord will swallow up death forever. Many are called, but few are chosen. Rejoice, my friends. The Lord has called you by the gospel and chosen you in your baptism. Do not forsake his grace, but instead cling to the certain comfort that he does not forsake you. He has conquered death and clothed you in his righteousness so that you might live in him forevermore. What joy! In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.